Welcome back to the Zycast. My name is Jonathan Martin. I'm so happy that you're here, and I am coming to you with the third in a trilogy, a triad, if you will, of sermons. Because anyone would call this a triad of sermons. It does feel like a um, a pretty relentless assault of sermons. I will say that. So gone off the rails with the preaching maybe more ways than one you know i i feel like at this point if i'm not being contentious in some way or another then um i don't think i'm generally contributing anything this message actually comes from a really deep place and a lot of emotion in it um kind of inadvertently uh, stumbled into talking about the problem of evil which, as I get into more, and as you'll hear in just a few moments, um, maybe is one of the tensions that I deal with as a person for whom the idea of inclusion, and specifically the notion of the open table of Christ, has revolutionized my life in every way. Believing that everybody has a place at the table, and really believing in the, the power of inclusion in this way, and yet finding, and none of us hate the adjectives right, but in, for lack of a better word, more progressive spaces, that oftentimes there's not really an account. There's not a thoroughgoing account of evil. And I think sometimes what happens when we have experiences in the world, like we've borne witness to here in the last couple of weeks, forces us to reckon with the problem of evil on a different scale. So that's what I'm attempting to do here. Me at my preachiest, speaking to our community here at the table, Oklahoma City. The audio is not great. It's not real clean audio, just um, uh, my recording from within the room. But you know why it's not uh, clean audio? Uh, it's not clean audio, y'all. It's because your lives are not clean. Your lives are messy, just like mine. <laughs> How do you like that move? <laughs> you can, if the levels are off, you can turn the volume up or down. Here you go. I think you can hear it, and I hope you'll hear something that will resonate in you on some level. As always. I'm so grateful that you're here. I'm not going to come back around at the end, so I just want to say here, I am grateful, more grateful than ever, for all of the, uh, those of you who like, when you subscribe, when you comment, when you share in any form, it means so much. For those of you who are supporting on Patreon, thank you for making this possible. It's such a big deal. And hey, the book, The Road Away from God, How Love Finds Us Even As We Walk Away, comes out June 7th. So a lot that's happening around that right now. Hope to see some of you on the road. So I'm traveling a bit more uh, these days and actually I'm still open to coming other places. We're firming some other things up, so maybe you could still bring me to your town. I would love that. At any rate, I'm so grateful to be on this journey with you. Thank you for letting me be part of your story some small way. I'm so glad that we're on this road together. Now again, welcome back to the Zycast. Here we go. So, um, Will's going to read for us in just a second. I'm going to set him up this way, and I hope I'm not throwing him off this way, because one of the things I found out from the last time Will read for us is that Will will actually do things like journal the text before he reads it, which I think is amazing. Um, I've been on a weird little run here, and I think, I'm saying this by way of setup, if you'll indulge me just a little. Um, so the last couple of weeks I've been 
speaking. And I haven't been out quite this much in a minute. Um, COVID happened, a lot of life happened, so it's been, it's been different and it's been good. But um, having this new book out, the last two places that I was, both at our friend Brad Zahn's church and also for our friends at the Vineyard Church in New Orleans, they both happened to be doing a series more or less on resurrection stories. And I ended up doing two, I mean, a little setup would be the same, because setup's just kind of from the book. But basically I ended up doing two entirely new messages in both of these places, neither of which are exactly from the book, which I think is kind of hilarious. Um, the little wedding that we just did was super intimate. Our friends Joel and Tosh came in because uh, we did someone to officiate, so Joel came in to officiate. We are, by the way, planning to do something with all our friends and family uh, this summer, so you'll all be invited. I mean, the kids weren't there, so the kids definitely need to be part of something that we're doing. Our families weren't there, we definitely want our families to be there. Um, but it was really funny having that time with Joel, who was there Sunday morning, because he also heard the thing I did the week before, and he jokingly said over lunch, only you, would be doing ostensibly like a book tour and feel the need to come up with new material for every, for every stop. But that is the kind of thing I would do. But you understand, like for, as a person who loves um, stand-up comedy, and I'll try not to use too many examples because I don't know who's canceled and not anymore. But I will tell you, as a person who thinks Chris Rock is a genius, my least favorite Chris Rock special was the one he did a few years ago where he was in three places. They had him in, it's like he was in LA and New York and I think Chicago. No, it was like, he was in another country, London. Was it like London, New York, and Chicago? Something like that. Anyway, the point is, it kept cutting back and forth between the three sets. And I felt like what it was trying to demonstrate was the sophistication of the comedian in terms of every beat's exactly the same no matter what city he's in. And what I kept thinking watching it was, well, this just breaks the illusion for me because I still want to believe in the moment. Even, I don't have any problem with anybody touring the same material. Um, as a big U2 fan, U2 constructs these very elaborate shows. They don't change up set lists uh, much at all. I once saw U2 in Dublin four times in the same week. I think they changed out three songs in the course of that week and I was delightfully happy. So I don't think there's anything wrong with touring the same material. I just tend to, you know, I love, I want to be fully in the moment. So that was like my least favorite Chris Rock stand-up because I was like, ah, oh, I'd rather just have, give me London, New York, or Chicago where I don't know that he's hitting every beat the same way in the city. <laughs> and let me look, like just kind of buy into, the, uh, buy into the illusion. So I'm saying all that to say, coming into tonight, I was thinking, man, you know, the book's really about the Emmaus Road, and now I feel like I'm reading the Emmaus Road as if I've never read it before, as if I've not written a word about it. There's all this new stuff. I should just talk about some of this new stuff I've been talking about. And then the thing happened that happens to me a lot. I'm sorry about that. This afternoon, I just had like, well, I'm, I'm going to glance at the lectionary text, just see what's there. And I saw the lectionary text, like, oh, man. <laughs> I think I'm going to have to talk about that. So sorry, Brother Will, for the curveball. <laughs> Could you read Acts 16 for me? Uh, from if I if I give it to you, um, Acts 16, uh, 16 to 34. Okay, I'm sorry to throw that change at you. I, my wrist hurts from right now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I drive me crazy doing this too. It's Acts 16 and it's 16 through 34. So like there through, uh, yeah, 34. 
the best scripture reader in the history of scripture readers, the Reverend Dr. Will James right here. Okay, Paul and Silas in prison. One day as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought to her owners a great deal of money by fortune time. While she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, these men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, these men are disturbing our city. They are Jews and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them secure. Following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was an earthquake, so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights, and rushing in, he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they answered, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And at the same hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds. Then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up into the house, set food before them, and he and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. Thank you, Reverend Dr. Will. The word of God. I was rereading that story, which I've thought about a lot, but haven't thought about in a minute, where Paul is being followed around, the Apostle Paul, followed around by this person who it describes, I think the language in the NRSV there says the spirit of divination. And this young woman is crying out in a loud voice, these men are servants of the Most High God, listen to them. And she says that over and over again. These men are servants of the Most High God. Listen to them. And what's always struck me about those words, by the way, is that she is theologically and doctrinally correct. Isn't that interesting? Like, nothing she's saying is wrong. Um, 
from our perspective, those of us who are Christians affirm the Apostles' Creed, well, yeah, uh, Paul and Silas are in fact servants of the Most High God, and they are proclaiming the truth of God. So people are good and right to listen to them. But there's something off about the story. She's shouting this over and over again. And so what's really happening is she's not actually calling people to pay attention to the truth. Really, this becomes an elaborate distraction from people hearing the truth. And so Paul, kind of matter-of-factly, whips around. I love that in, in RSV it translates that Paul is very annoyed. Paul, very annoyed, turns around, casts the evil spirit out of this person, and then goes on about his business. And so maybe before I say anything else, I think I want to say this. I'm a person that runs, and I feel like a lot of us are like this, I run very hard from labels. Why would you not want to run from labels? Who likes those? Um, labels become containers that are too constrictive and too confined. So there's certain words, certain adjectives that I'll hear people use to describe um, sometimes maybe what we're doing, sometimes maybe what I'm doing, that I don't often resonate with, but I don't necessarily take time to correct them because, and I really don't mean this to sound, for this to sound pretentious or something, I feel like it's unhelpful to think too hard about what you're doing. You need to do the thing that you feel called to do and not sit around in endless conversation trying to describe the thing you're doing. <laughs> so I try not to worry too much about the adjectives and try to just like do the thing. This is an ironic way to put this, and I'm aware of that. That I'll fight to the death over, quotation marks. <laughs> I will go to the mattresses in Godfather language over the open table. I mean, really, that is the thing. I think it's the center of Jesus' ministry. I don't feel like I made it the center. It's not, I don't think it's the center to me. It's the reason why. central scandal of the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth in the New Testament. This is why everybody's always coming at Jesus. It's for his table practice. There's a reason why the Gospels give this much press to this. I'm convinced because the table practice of Jesus was supposed to inform the table practice of the early church. I don't think that's always what happens. But at any rate, I don't think I put it at the center of the scandal. I think the feast is the center of the mystery, which is why it's such a big deal around here. So, yeah, open table, unapologetic, loud about it proud about it. Everybody's welcome. All people are welcome. Every kind of story is welcome. There's space, no matter who you are or where you come from, if you say yes to the invitation of the Spirit to God's table, there's not a wrong way to say yes, and you're always welcome. And I know that within the categories that we have, within the templates that we're given, within the grid, that if you believe in an open table, and if you're an inclusive community, then the words that people are going to use to describe you are going to be things like progressive. Some people would say left-leaning. Some people would say inclusive. Whatever words you want to use. Well, again, I don't really care about any of that. I do care about the inclusiveness. I do care about the open table. That's the point for me.
But here, I'm going to tell you a thing that I feel like makes, I know it for me, this isn't me trying to find a very comfortable place in the middle. I don't really believe in any of that. I'm not really kind of a, oh, when they're polarizing views, you know, just find a place in the middle, we'll be fine. I, I think usually being in the middle of things is not where you want to be, actually. So I'm, I don't aspire to be a centrist, actually. I don't really care about being a centrist. So that's not really where I'm coming from. But in this particular conversation, I'll tell you this. Maybe the thing that makes me feel like I fit in some way most not neatly with a lot of people who would self-identify as progressive people is that I read a text like that in the book of Acts where Paul whips around and casts a demon out of this person. And I think stuff like that actually happens. Like I really believe in it. I actually believe in evil. And I can't even tell you in a super detailed, probably in a super helpful way, exactly what all I believe about evil because I don't know exactly if I believe that evil exists in a, the form of like a sentient person. I don't, I definitely don't think there's like a guy who, um, <laughs> with slick back hair and a suit with a pitchfork. And it's, I don't know, sort of, I guess the image that comes to my mind is not so much like, um, the red horned devil, but maybe more like Al Pacino and the devil's advocate, which would probably make more sense. But I don't think there's necessarily like an Al Pacino character out there who that's that's scheming against me every day. I'm not really thinking about it that way. Um, I don't claim to know exactly how this works. The way, the best way I would know how to put it, and it's not super sophisticated actually, and I don't know if it's satisfactory for anybody. But the way I would put it is that I think there's a form of evil that exists in the world that's greater than some of its parts. I think that exists. And I think not believing in evil is um, a bit of a luxury of people who aren't necessarily engaged with what's really happening in the world. Evil is a thing. And on, on like a very basic level, and you don't have to spiritualize this, maybe I'm wrong to spiritualize this. I'm not saying there's not other explanations. I'm not saying they're not better scientific explanations. But okay, if you are a creative person, in any form, if you create anything good ever, and I'm, and I'm talking about creativity here, is if there's anything inside of you that makes you want to create something that's beautiful and meaningful, if you do anything remotely artistic at all. I remember years ago reading, what was that guy's name? Is it Stephen Pressfield or something? Wrote this book called The War of Art. I read that book so long ago. It's been so long since I've read it. I don't even know if I commend it to you now because it's been a long time since I read it. But I remember loving it at the time. One of the things I loved about it is the War of Art talks about the resistance. How anytime you try to create something, how you come up against the resistance. And how everybody recognizes the resistance. I thought the language was so genius. It's like, yeah, like everybody knows what it is to deal with the resistance. If you've ever been, um, and let's not like, let's not be pious here. Like real talk, if you've ever actually dealt with an addiction in your life, and who among us has not ever dealt with some kind of addiction in our lives? You definitely know what it's like to have something in your life that seems to propel you towards self-destruction. But there's this other part of you that makes you want to choose the thing that's constructive and that's going to be good and that's going to be about building, not destroying. Don't you know what it's like to try to take steps towards a thing that's 
building, the thing that's constructed, the thing that's beautiful, but it feels like that there's an undertow that pulls you back towards the other thing, you don't have to believe that's evil. I'm just saying that I do. I tend to think that there's something out there that actually tries to, that I don't even know how to explain. I don't even think I begin to understand, but that actually tries to hinder us from the good and beautiful. And I understand why people would not be open to that kind of language of evil because it gets weaponized. You love the wrong person, therefore you're evil. Something about your wiring makes you evil. Yeah, that's not good. But I do think that kind of resistance, that kind of undertow, I think there's something in that that I do recognize as, as something like a force of evil that exists in the world. So I'm not trying to say this self-referentially as like, you know, I'm trying to be a man of God and you know the devil's trying to keep me down out there. Maybe I feel like that sometimes. So I just tend to think that's true for everybody. I think everybody is trying to do good most of the time, trying to do the best they can. There are these forces that try to wrap us up. I think there are things that I look at and I think, why did that, in a way that feels like, oh, that feels like there was something going on there to like try to take me out in some way. Could have easily taken me out. You know, I think those things happen. Paul and Silas in this particular passage are on their way to prayer. Prayer, Marvel nerds, is universe building, it's world building. Prayer is all about good. They're on their way to the place of prayer when disruption comes, when distraction comes. And that's one of the things I think we can see about the nature of evil. They're on their way to a place of prayer. Parents this week on their way to drop their kids off at an elementary school in rural Texas. That's good. That's constructive. That's beautiful. How do you know that? How could you possibly know that you're about to drop your kids off at a house of horrors? Which does it mean, and that's where I want to be very particular with my language, does it mean that the person who perpetrates the acts doesn't mean that they're incurably evil? But do I think there's a force of evil? That is at work in situations? Oh, I absolutely, I absolutely do. Hateful, mean, atrocious. And can I say it like this? And I don't know if this puts me somewhere like in the grid or whatever. One of the reasons I continue to believe in something like evil as a cosmic force is precisely because of how we respond to events like that. How the hell can you possibly begin to rationally explain how the only developed Western country that has weapons on that level. We, this happened in Australia one time. And they rounded up everybody's guns. How, how do you explain? Because it, it goes beyond, and that's where for me, I'm not saying that makes it right. I'm, that's kind of what teased me off. Um, Scott Peck is an author I love. He's been dead for a long time now, but was a psychologist. And he wrote a book around 1981 called People the Lie. And part of the premise of that book was that in his clinical practice, he came across people who seemed to, for lack of a better way to put it, seemed to exhibit manifestations of evil in a way that he didn't have clinical categories for. 
And so the book becomes People Alive. Still not demonizing these people. The idea was much more like because people early in life, probably because of trauma or something, start to choose to believe things that they know that are lies. Not just telling lies, but believing them. That they start to lose the capacity to discern the truth. And then you really don't know the difference anymore. Years later, in like 2002, he wrote a book called Glimpses of the Devil, which was a little bit more hardcore because it was actually about people they encountered as a practice that he felt like needed like full-on exorcism. His journey was an interesting one because he wasn't a person of faith, and his, uh, his encounters with evil was part of what made him a believer. Kind of see his Lewis in that way, like this sort of like, well, if there's something bad out here, there must be something good like on the opposite side. I, I tend to find that compelling for me because I'm not, I'm not derailing myself. I look at something like what has happened here and what continues to happen, and I say like, look, there is no form of data, there are no statistics, there is no rational way to explain how or why people can continue to choose any version of individual rights over like the ab just the absolute murder of children. It doesn't make sense. Logically, it doesn't make sense. We know that these particular weapons are not used for hunting, so that doesn't make sense. Nobody's killing deer with these. There's no, there's no way you can connect that to somehow having basic background checks. It's exactly why I, I read something like that, and then when I'm reading the Hebrew Bible, and people are worshiping Yahweh, and in the next moment, they're melting down their jewelry and worshiping the calf, that it doesn't seem like silly talk to me. Because this is exactly, again, what the hell that we are doing is that we absolutely construct idols for ourselves, that we decide our, that we decide are worthy of our worship, that we decide are worthy of our allegiance. And it's not, it's not rational. There's not intellectual reasoning behind it. There's a spiritual power behind it. There's a spiritual control. And I don't know exactly what to do about that. I mean, I could, you know, I have thoughts. Uh, in terms of political action or like whatever, civil disobedience, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, I do think we're dealing with actual spiritual forces here. And there's a reason why people can see and hear what is recognizably true and still shut it down, still choose to believe things that are, that are just openly lies. Some of these things should not be questions. Um, I, I did not. I did not mean to do all this. I feel the same way about. There's a handful of things I really feel this way about. If you talk to friends who are like-minded in other countries, and by like-minded I mean throw out the lasso a bit, talk to people who are very conservative theologically and politically in other countries, and they will not understand your insistence on why people need to be able to carry air. No one understands that. No one in the developed world understands how it's a conservative liberal issue to what, we, what you believe about the environment. That's just, that's just silliness. It's just, you can think anything you want about whether or not the role of government should be limited or whether or not it should be expanded, which is traditionally the argument between conservatives and liberals. You can think anything you want about that and still believe in like basic science. It is only here that these things become so weaponized that people can't accept the truth of like basic, basic, basic science. And I'm convinced that's because there is a kind of idolatry, there is a kind of evil, there's something about that that's intrinsically wicked. And so I, you know, 
if I thought this would work, that all we need to do is just, you know, face the other opposite direction and say, in the name of Jesus, be cast out, then I would do that. I'm not opposed to it, and maybe we need to do some of that too. But I do, I do think there's something in this text that, like, is calling out to me right now. You know one of the things I love most about how the New Testament actually deals with evil that I feel like gets really underplayed? Nope, nobody talks about it this way. I say People in general don't talk about it this way, and that makes them sad. Because, again, the way people talk about evil is weaponized against people, and it's used as a tool to hurt people who are already marginalized in ways that are, like, that are just tragic. But the way the New Testament actually does it, have you noticed even this text? The issue is, so the woman who has this gift to be able to foretell people's future is actually bringing a lot of money into the town. And so the problem that people have with Paul and Silas is that they're speaking liberation in a way that's going to disrupt economic stability in the town. And that right there, friends, you want to talk about the real difference between truth and lie and good and evil? Now, that, now that, that's, where you, that's where you can get reliable. You don't take my word for anything. And I really mean this. Follow the money. Like, follow the actual money. Wherever there is an impulse towards people becoming liberated and free, and people have that sense of, like, oh, man, this is going to disrupt the economy, that's always the deal, man. Whenever you disrupt people's money or their wars, because this is where they get meaning, people lose their minds. That's where they're ready to put Paul and Silas in jail. The war part I'm inserting, I admit. But I think the principle is true. <laughs> and so I preach it in my Pentecostal way. But you hear what I'm saying. You get to people's like deepest centers of meaning. Oh. And they will scream and they will yell. And they will say that they are righteous. The townspeople, no, no, no. We can't let... Can you even imagine? I, can you even imagine what they must have been saying? I'm sure they made it sound like Paul and Silas hurt this, hurt this young woman. Like, oh man, this is like, no, oh, this is terrible, like what he did. No, like, Paul and Silas are coming against the system of exploitation that actually abuses her. And I'm sure they're going to say, like, oh man, this is terrible. Isn't this terrible what they've done? This is a precious gift that we need. All they care about is the money. All they care about is keeping the order, everything well old and running the way that it, that it was before. I don't know how anybody feels about this. But I think this is actually what's happening in the text. So Paul rebukes the evil spirit in the name of Jesus. And that is one of the places that I, there are not many places to find refuge in moments like this, but I can tell you that's one of the places that I go is this idea that, you know, some things, I don't think it's just a simple difference in ideology. I do think there's some things that, even if it's not always helpful to frame it this way, are questions of good and evil, and truth or lie, and you have to, you have to maintain some things. And that's just where I am, for better or for worse. But I'm, I'm, it's, it's a little hot tonight. I'm, <laughs> this, this won't be long, because this is almost like recap. Since, um, since the book is, well, here, uh, and out to the world here in 10 days or so, one of the things I actually tell in the book, and I, I always would be super cautious how I tell anything like this because, and I'm really not just saying this, I don't consider myself to be like a, a prophetic person, like I just don't. I don't think I have a third eye, I don't think that I 
and some mystical, like whatever. I do feel like there are a handful of times in my life where there has been some sense that the Spirit of God, whatever you believe about that, has taken me somewhere that seemed pretty unmistakable. And this was one of those times. So in the book, I don't just like, give the idea. I talk about this particular time because it was so meaningful. And it's one of those things I talked about forever when it happened because it felt like it was important. The week of the election in 2016... The lectionary text that week was the same as the lectionary text today. Act 16, this exact passage, was precisely the one that Will read to us tonight. Exactly that text. And that was two days before the election. The election was on Tuesday, that was on Sunday. And at the time, I was preaching in Tulsa. Tulsa now, I feel like, was kind of my halfway house to get me to Oklahoma. It's sort of like I was, was supposed to be there long term, but it was kind of like got me into Oklahoma and I tried to escape. Thought I was done forever. Love brought me back. <laughs> but I remember really having the sense of desperation because, and all the time has been like that since. But you can remember, can't you? Just how tense it was then. And how everybody was like, well, what's going to happen? I remember, and preaching. <laughs> and everybody at the church was super on edge. And I remember like, man, I'm having the sense of, I, I, really, need a word of I, need, I really need a word from God for this. What's, what am I even going to talk about here? And I read this passage. And right after Paul and Silas are thrown in jail, I'm moving quickly here. Here's what happens, right? They're thrown into a, uh, into a Roman jail, into a small space. An earthquake comes and it shakes that space. The Hebrew Bible reading that week, incidentally, was one from the Old Testament. Um, obviously, the that was a terrible incident. The Hebrew Bible reading was from the Old Testament. The Hebrew Bible reading was specifically that week from the prophets where it talks about how God says he's going to shake the nations. And he says that when he shakes the nations, which by the way, he's saying to Israel, he's saying to Israel as his chosen people, I'm going to shake all the nations. And the clear subtext is you are not going to be exempt from the shaking. God's people aren't going, y'all don't get to sit this out. God's going to shake all the nations. But then God goes on to say that through the shaking, that he's going to bring forth his treasure out of Israel. And this, there's this idea that comes that, that the shaking is going to come to all the nations, that through it, a unique treasure will come forth from the people of God. And so I'm preaching this that Sunday, and I really felt like, if I ever felt like the Holy Spirit gave me something specific, it was that day. That there was this image, you know, it's like so many children of the church locked inside of small spaces, locked inside of constricted spaces, unable to get out. And now there's a shaking that's coming. And the shaking there in Acts 16 is so violent, the specific language of the text is, it says the very foundations were shaken. A shaking that comes that's so, you understand, so it's so violent that it's not just, you don't just feel if you're in the prison, everybody in the region is going to feel the same upheaval. Doesn't matter what you believe about the upheaval. <laughs> Doesn't matter whether or not you have a positive confession about the upheaval. Like everybody is going to have the same experience. Faith, no faith. Jesus, no Jesus. Everybody experiences the shaking the same way. And I have to think that Paul and Silas, who've just been stripped and beaten, naked and all that, thrown into this little jail, that probably the first thought when you have an earthquake is not like, oh boy, my deliverer has come. 
But in fact, what happens is the earthquake that comes is exactly what God uses to unlock Paul and Silas to get out of this small space, to come into a wider space. And so that was my word just before the election in 2016, is that an awful lot of God's kids have been locked in small, constrictive spaces. And the shaking that's happening right now is violent, and there's a kind of terror to it. And I'm not necessarily saying God directly orchestrates all of that, but as a person who does believe that God is always leveraging beauty out of brokenness, and hovering over the chaos and all those things, that what God's doing in the midst of this is that while it's shaking for everybody, it's violent for everybody, a lot of people who've been inside some small spaces are also getting out. Yes. Are also getting out. And in 2022, mm -hmm. when I look at things, I think, you know what? I'll put it this way. I don't have any regrets about it, sir. Because that's exactly what I see continuing to happen. The shaking continues to be violent. But I also see a lot of people who've been stuck in small spaces continuing to get out. Who needed to get out. And probably wouldn't get out any other way. Isn't it wild? Isn't it wild how the shaking gets so violent and so intense that it's like people just aren't paying attention to you? <laughs> some of the stuff that's happened in our lives, some of, some of my belief shifts have been so, there's been like such upheaval. There's, I've never thought this before in my life, but there's almost part of it's like, well, I'm glad people have been distracted by all these big things out there. So it's gone. <laughs> While I'm out the side door. And it's, it's not news. Nobody cares, because they're dealing with their own shaking. Man, I'm, I feel like I'm preaching a little bit right now. Like they're saying, thank you, Ryan and Krista. Like really, it's like it's been so violent for them. Nobody's, like, nobody's paying attention to what you're doing. They, they barely survive themselves. But in the meantime, some of us have gotten out and are still getting out. And that's where, for all the things that, of course, like anybody else, I'll look at it, and some days it feels like, Man, we're going to hell in a handbasket. This is awful. How will any of us survive this? We're going to bring an apocalypse on ourselves. All those things. But I keep seeing that movement. People are getting liberated out of small spaces. And they're coming out of these cells. They're coming out of these little places. And stepping into something bigger, which I have to believe is what God had in mind all along. Well, that's quite a journey. But all I did was preach the text. Is that really what we have is Paul and Silas going around trying to do good work, trying to do the work of liberation, trying to do the work of setting folks free. Distraction, resistance comes. They deal with the distraction and resistance as it comes, and then they get right on back to their business. And in doing so, they get locked up. When they're locked up, then God is the one that seems to leverage this earthquake in some way to actually unlock the cells. The way I put it then, I, I still I still think this way, the problem is I'm not T.D. Jakes, so when I say these things it doesn't sound cool. So like I say these things that like if I were a better preacher it would sound cool, but it doesn't sound as cool when I say them. But I really this is really what I felt at the time is that um, what they what everybody else sees as an earthquake for them, it's a jailbreak, and that's really how I see it. It's an earthquake for everybody else, but it's also a jailbreak. 
Like everything's falling apart, everything's collapsing. It's as bad as you think it is, and maybe worse. And yet it's also, it's exactly that thing that is the mechanism that's being used where a lot of folks are able to, to get free. And if that's on point at all, then I think it's this way. It's not to give anybody instructions. Because I don't really believe in giving people instructions. I don't even know that. If you ever come to me asking for like advice and say, I believe in something more like spiritual direction. I believe in helping you listen to the questions and all that. I, I don't really give advice. So I don't have any instructions for anybody. But I do believe in something in something that works like a little more like this. If any of this is true, then I don't think it gives you good instructions. But it might describe what's already happening in your life. And that, by the way, I'm not telling you how you... I feel like it would be weird to tell you how to evaluate my own sermons. <laughs> I'll tell you how I evaluate everybody else's and also these things that I hear, in, generally speaking. Is this descriptive of my own life? Is this descriptive of my own experience? Or are people trying to tell me that I can't believe my eyes and ears? Because you try to tell me I don't believe my, that I can't believe my own eyes and ears, F you, I'm not listening to that. <laughs> and I probably shouldn't say that even in an abbreviation, but I kind of mean it. I get really tired of people trying to tell me in some form or another, you can't trust yourself, you can't listen to yourself. Don't listen to people who tell you you can't listen to yourself. But I do think that sometimes God will send people along our path who will describe for us exactly what's happening in our lives in a way that has deep resonance. We're like, that's it. Yeah, I recognize that. Well, that's what's happening in my life. I know, I know, I know that because I've been living it. And so if you're living it, then I would tell you, don't trust my experience. Trust your experience. Trust your own experience of what God is doing. Trust your own witness. Trust your own, that, that's... I take that idea so seriously. Your own inner witness of what the Holy Spirit is doing in the world. If, if any of this catches with some of that, yeah. I would encourage you to pay attention to it. Stand with me if you would. Memorial Day weekend, dressed in white. Handful of folks at the table and I'm sweaty and I'm really feeling the stuff that I'm talking about. <laughs> I want to pray for us, and then we're coming to the table. I think Deanna's going to lead us in the liturgy tonight, which I'm excited about. I just simply want to pray for you. My sense is, and I really, if I can offer this in any way at all, I don't, I never know what the Holy Spirit's doing, but this is just kind of what I'm feeling. My sense is that this is really supposed to be affirmation for people who are, who are listening for the things that you're already hearing. And since that you won't second guess that too much. Because I do think sometimes even when God is speaking as clearly as God can speak. And we're seeing all kinds of things. And we're seeing, we're discerning as well as we possibly can. It's also a lot of noise and it's a lot of chaos. And I just feel like um, some of us need to be encouraged. Yes, it is violent, and yes, it's disruptive, and it's scary, and it's heartbreaking, all the things. But also trust the Spirit who, in the midst of these things, is somehow orchestrating things in your life in such a way as to break you out into larger spaces. Trust that voice. Trust that leading. So, God, I'm just... Um,
what comes to my mind right now is um, Christ, when you said that your sheep would know your voice. So I'm not a I'm not a ventriloquist, and I don't do impressions, and we don't know what the voice of Jesus sounded like to begin with. But my prayer tonight would be that your sheep would hear your voice. Because that that's just my sense, God, is that anything that you would be saying to us here is not new, but is instead just the confirmation of the things that you've been saying already. That it is confirmation that while it is violent and while um, there are so many things around us that feel evil and feel dehumanizing, there's also a movement of love and liberation and light seen it and we've glimpsed it in our better moments and our freer moments and our clearer moments we've seen it and we want to trust that leading we want to trust that God that spirit that is in us that is in the world bringing all things towards reconciliation I pray especially as we get ready to come to your table that you give us the grace to gather all of our own and be able to bring them here and also to be able to pick up what we need bread for the journey, strength for the journey uh, miracles as needed hope as needed uh, that we would be able to pick up hope that we would be able to receive power that we would be able to receive life and encouragement in our hands and drink from the cup as you provided for us tonight in the name of God the Father, Son, Spirit.